Welcome to the Rosenbox, where dancers go for show prep and candid chat. I'm Claire Kretschmar, and I'm Aron Sands, and we are dancers with New York City Ballet. Welcome everyone to the Rosenbox. I'm happy to be here with you all, all the listeners. And um, today I'm actually doing this podcast solo without my friend Aron Sands because he is prepping to go to Madrid where New York City Ballet will perform a varied repertoire in Spain. And it's very special for Aron because that is his homeland. And to perform for your family and friends who don't get to see you perform that often is a, is a rare treat as an artist. So um, it'll just be me today. And I'm happy to introduce Lee Zimmerman, who is the intimacy director at New York City Ballet. And this is a new role that has never existed at New York City Ballet until this year. And she has so much to share, and it's definitely a, a field that I know little about, and it's also very new to me as it is to New York City Ballet. So I've been eager to learn more about this as well. So without further ado, uh, we'll hear from Lee. Hi, Lee. Hi, Claire. So nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm really excited to speak with you about this subject because intimacy direction is something very new to me. And since retiring from New York City Ballet, the role of intimacy director is something that has been added to New York City Ballet. So again, I don't know very much from firsthand experience with this role of intimacy director, but I'm so excited for you to share your perspective and also your history, like who are you and how did you come to be in this position? And perhaps that's a good place to start. So if you could just tell us maybe where you grew up, what your training was like, because I know you trained in the arts in various disciplines, and then how you got to be here at New York City Ballet. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. You are not alone in not knowing what this role of intimacy direction does and what it is. And I have come to it on a rather long journey. I grew up around Madison, Wisconsin. And at 16, I moved to Boston to dance with Boston Ballet. I was sort of plucked out of the Midwest by a wonderful New York City ballet dancer named Bruce Wells. Oh, yeah. He danced with the company from 66 mm -hmm. to 76. Just an incredible mentor in my life. He's still a very big part of my life, yeah. so I'm always talking about Bruce Wells. He took my partner and I. I'm 5'10", and on point, I'm like 6'3". So wow. <laughs> my part, well, 6'2"-ish. Now I'm probably even shorter because, you know, with age. Um, and <laughs> my, my partner at the time was a, a guy named Mark Grothman. He mm -hmm. actually danced professionally for quite some time elsewhere. But we both went to Boston, and that was great for me because I could continue that relationship as a, a dancing partner. Mm -hmm. So I feel like from a very young age, I understood partnership and communication. And at the time at Boston, I think young dancers all have competitive environments, but it was a fairly competitive environment and new leadership came in. And at 18 years old, I was out of job. Mm -hmm. And I'd really kind of thought, you know, I'd always had dance training in my life, all forms of dance, which mm -hmm. I was grateful for after that. I just couldn't see the light at that time. So really at 18, I had to rethink. I, I tried to continue dancing 
in classical ballet companies. I went to Fort Worth Ballet, Iglevsky Ballet. I trained at PNB and, you know, tried and tried to get into that company. But again, I think at the time, the repertory at the time tended to be like Swan Lake and Giselle and like some across the board, not a very diverse looking company in terms of shapes and sizes. So uh, the writing was on the wall that I had to make a transition, and I did. My first Broadway show was in 1991. It was called The Will Rogers Follies, and they needed a lot of tall dancers. <laughs> um, and I really, I, you know, Tommy Toon gave me my first break, and he really valued classical ballet training. I had to get up to speed with a lot of other skills, my acting and my singing, but that show was was an incredible show. I mean, Cy Coleman was the composer. Betty Comden and Adolph Green were the lyricists. You know, incredible orchestrators and arrangers and set builders. Tony Walton. I mean, like giants in the industry of theater. And so that really led me into, ooh, I think I might have found my home. And I built my other skills. It was a pivot at 18 years old that I didn't know I'd have to make. Because I really loved ballet. And it's always been with me. Fast forward 10 Broadway and West End shows later, my ballet skills really served me along the way. I, I was the girl in the yellow dress in Contact. I was in the original revival of Chicago in 1996, where Anne Ranking and Bob Fosse, back in the day, I never worked with Bob, but he instilled that in Anne Ranking and other Fosse legends, the value of classical training. And, mm-hmm. you know, Anne Ranking had classical training. And you could see the versatility in dancers who didn't stay in the classical environment, but really just were special outside because of that foundation. And then I really simultaneously started working in film and television. And um, that's really led me all over the world. Uh, I lived in London for 10 years, performed in the West End. I won an Olivier Award for the role of Sheila in a chorus line, which was really, really special because her storyline is that she gets to sing at the ballet and her big song is everything is beautiful at the ballet Mm. but her life isn't going so great because she's aging and what do you do if you can't dance Mm. so I started to play that role for a while and it was very close to home yes very close to home yes what do you do when you can't dance Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I carry with me now and I think it started over 10 years ago was who am I when my identity is so tied to what I do. And we as ballet dancers, we, you know, we're training from three, five years old, right? That's who we are. Mm -hmm. We might have fabulous families and we might have great friends in school and we, but we make sacrifices to get to the highest levels that we have. Mm -hmm. And that opened my eyes to identity and the mental health side of artists and, and who are we when we have career-defining injuries or have to make changes in the way we think about ourselves affects our mental health mm-hmm. and the core of who we are, who we think we are. And we can have no support and we can have great support, but that doesn't mean it's not still a difficult transition inside ourselves. And that started my curiosity right before the pandemic of going back to school while I was still working professionally in shows and musicals, Broadway, West End, everything. But I, the pandemic really made everybody think, I think. Definitely. <laughs> um, it made me think. It stopped everybody. And they, you know, I think a lot of people I talk to, they say you have to sort of face yourself. Mm-hmm. When What's things are going quiet, on. yeah. Yeah, when things are quiet. And it's a blessing and a curse. And you can choose to make something out of that or not. 
And I think we all were swirling there for a while, figuring mm-hmm. what it was and how we were going to cope. But my way of doing that is to pivot again. <laughs> how am I going to use this time once my brain realized, ooh, this is going to be more than a minute that we're all going to do this downtime thing. And I went back to school, and that was my journey of exploring clinical mental health counseling, which is I'm back in school now uh, pursuing my master's in being able to help artists. And that's my target population. I have professors who say, who, what's your population? You know, and they're thinking, children, adults, the elderly. And I'm going, no, let's go even smaller than that. I want to serve artists. That's my goal. I'm not there yet. And then intimacy. Um, intimacy direction has not been around that long. So again, you're not alone in not knowing about it. It really had some time to flourish over the pandemic with online training and awareness about what do we want to look like when we come back into our artistic spaces. Mm -hmm. And with the Me Too movement, what does consent look like? And what does our communication look like around what we need, what we want our artistic spaces to support and include? And that was a really interesting conversation for me. My brain just went, whoa, that kind of is all my passions colliding. I've always been a fundraiser for the arts, so it was trying to take care of artists in a very different way. So when I was in high-profile shows or or TV shows or films that I could use that platform, I did. But, you know, asking people for money (laughs) gets really difficult over time, which I really applaud everyone that does. And I thought maybe I can lend my experience and get some more skills around this new role that's in the room with us now. You know, film and TV brought it on board first. HBO was the first uh, studio to take on a full-time intimacy coordinator. So in intimacy, there's a distinction. We have a couple titles. One is intimacy coordinator, and that's for film and TV. They are really coordinating the experience with intimacy on that side. Intimacy direction is for stage, live theater. Mm, so, I, yeah, I mean, we're trained across the board and are qualified across the board, but there are specific competencies that I thought my experience really, you know, supported me to do and, and to speak authentically about. And um, as I started to shape that, it was musicals and plays and then there were a lot of dancers in musicals, and I have obviously done that for 30 years, and I was like, I get you. Um, and then it was like, well, what about concert dance? What about choreographers? What are you doing? How are you working with bodies? How are you talking to people in the room? How do partners talk to each other? What are we talking about around consent and boundaries, which is really the core of intimacy work? And so it just, my world just kind of got smaller, smaller, smaller of what I wanted to really look at Mm -hmm. and where I thought my experience could have some credibility right away. And so I got some experience, you know, intimacy directing on plays and musicals, working with choreographers, working in rooms on new works with choreographers who didn't know what they wanted to do, didn't know if there was a narrative, didn't know if it was just let's discover it while we're there. But introducing at the start best practices around consent and boundaries. Now, dancers, we are, we are a silent art form, mm-hmm. right? So in the very early stages of our training, our voice is almost trained out of us in a way. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate to have teachers and directors, you know, artistic directors over the years who 
cared what I thought. <laughs> but for the most part, you know, we just get on with it. And we push our bodies and we enter the room every day thinking, well, my body is here to do whatever the choreographer wants. But the culture around that is shifting, that we actually do have a say. We can check in with each other. <laughs> How are you today? I'm about to work with you all day. How are you doing? And while we might do that, we it's it's very helpful to start to develop some vocabulary and language around that. And so some of my job is communication and giving people tools. How do we voice what we need? And how are we not fearful of doing that and somehow being penalized for it, taken out of a role, taken out of a company, like, like they're a problem, they're not easy to work with? It's shifting that whole thinking. So my work now is really organizational. You know, it's not just with dancers. It's with artistic directors. It's with policy and we can go more into that in a minute, but it really appealed to like the analytical side of my brain, but the artistic side and what it frees up. Like I've been shocked when somebody doesn't have to guess what's going to happen today in the room or where they're going to be touched. The artistic freedom that flies around after that because they know no one's guessing. They're not worrying. Things are not going unsaid. You get to just fly. And that is where I'm really finding some joy. And when I can see that it's not tying people down, it's freeing them up. Yeah, and isn't that so true with many disciplines and even in workplaces, how when you have a certain structure and a clarity with that structure and boundaries that are set in place from the beginning, from that setting, artists can flourish. And I I'm, I'm mm -hmm. guess I'm speaking very specifically about artists, but um, I would say people in, again, many workplaces, when you have clarity with your structures and your boundaries set from authorities and, and your peers in the room, people can flourish. So let's pivot and let's go dive deep into this role at New York City Ballet in particular. So you joined as intimacy director like in the fall of 2022? No, actually I... I know that the company started looking for someone, oh, okay. but I came to you in January. I see. Uh, I came to the company in January. I think it was the best time in the new year. What I know is that the dancers identified some needs and support that they wanted within certain ballets. So while my work is really in multiple parts, but the two big chunks of it are training in intimacy best practices so that we kind of all have a common language. But then in specific works, whether it's existing repertory or new works, I will be in the studio supporting the movement and how to work with intimate moments within choreography. So that's where it really is different than, you know, musicals or plays where there are intimate moments and we're actually choreographing moves around the intimacy. In dance, and, and specifically in ballet, that's a slightly different process because the movement is already there. Mm -hmm. So we then say, well, are we going to change the movement of, you know, choreographers who are no longer with us? And, you know, repertory directors get a little bit tense and think, ooh, what are you asking me to do? Not necessarily, no. That's never the route I anticipate. If it were a huge boundary for a dancer to tell the story exactly that way, and there was a slight shift of things we could do to make it possible for those people to work within their boundaries, then 
most of the time we find it. But I think a lot of the work is done in preparation mm-hmm. and the approach. And like I said, once that is done, it's very freeing. The process is very freeing. And then you can explore the choreography in a way that feels a little bit, you feel more confident about it. And I, I stopped there for a second because we work against using the word safe. Mm. Safety is subjective. Like what's safe for you might not be safe for me, feel safe for me. So in the world of intimacy, we've been playing around with a lot of different terms like brave and enthusiastic consent and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But basically, you want to show up and be ready to go. There's not that little voice inside of you saying, "Um, I'm not so sure, but you're still nodding your head yes. Yeah. You know, we've all done that. And that's not a great place to start uh, the creative juices flowing, you know. Yeah, no, definitely not. And so the dancers have had a series of workshops or just or one at least. Yeah, the dancers had a training session. Mm -hmm. You know, City Ballet is a big company. So I like to uh, they're very busy, but I also like to break it up into smaller groups Mm -hmm. um, if I can, which we did. So we do training sessions and I introduce sort of the industry's understanding of what the definition of intimacy is, because again, that's kind of subjective too. More experienced dancers may feel like, well, I'm so desensitized to all this touch and all mm-hmm. of this proximity to another person. It's not That doesn't feel intimate to me. A new company member may feel like, oh, this is like a whole new environment, or I'm just using those two as examples, but it really is open to interpretation what intimacy is. So in the industry... Um, the unions have taken a lead with the guidance of intimacy professionals, the leading intimacy professionals in the field, and they have developed a definition of what they see intimacy as so that we can start with a basic understanding and foundation of of that. And what I like about that is that the unions, the sister unions, AGMA and uh, SAG-AFTRA and Equity, are all in agreement about what that is. So as artists, we can all share a definition, and then we can kind of go into our respective settings, if you will, and, and kind of interpret what that means. It's often understood to encompass staged sexual content, intimate physical contact, nudity or partial nudity, and sexual violence. So that's where we started in the industry for our definition. But as it's evolved, we have added to content of a sexual nature. We've added to that by saying intimacy also includes content that leverages the five federally protected characteristics. And what are they? They're gender and sexuality, race, disability, religion, and age. Now, I'll just give one example. That's it's where we ended with age. You can imagine a very experienced company member who's been there for 20 years, maybe dancing with a, you know, new to mid-seasoned core member, right? So there's an age difference there. Within those moments that those people are working together, there's going to be a difference in the way we approach our work. And so our subjective ideas around intimacy and what that means and the power, uh, you know, things involved in that moment All of that starts to mix up. But we want to be very careful to include those five federally protected characteristics in our definitions now because it is not just sexual content or loaded content. It's 
what piece of us are we leveraging to do this work? In addition to like training, intimacy professionals need other qualifications, a lot of other qualifications. And the reason I bring that up is because the union is starting to say what those need to be. And I say this now, you know, to all of the people listening, that you need to vet the people that come into your rooms, your artistic spaces now. If there's a new face in a new role, please make sure you understand where they got their training, what their experience is, why they're there, you know? You, you have that right, because this is all new. And so the unions are, are trying to get some, you know, a safety net around that to support the industry of intimacy and say, you know, to, to other companies or people hiring intimacy directors and coordinators, yes, they need to do this training. Yes, they need to be skilled in physical movement for intimacy choreography. But they should also have mental health first aid, preventing discrimination, sexual harassment training, conflict de-escalation, which you can imagine how that's helpful when working with a partner or a group over the years, microaggressions in the workplace, proper modesty garments, and working with wardrobe to, to feel secure in your costumes, and what do quick changes look like, and right? So it really is expansive. So those are what we need to be skilled in. We need to be skilled in teaching consent, teaching boundary practice, which I can explain, choreographing within the choreography these intimate moments. And I like to call that consensual physical storytelling because we're not actually changing the moves in classical ballet. And then there's a documentation procedure that once everyone agrees what the intimacy looks like and what everyone has consented to do and repeat it, not change it, I will then do a documentation procedure, which is basically I'm adapting our documentation vocabulary from intimacy, the world of intimacy, and I'm combining that with ballet vocabulary, right? And we write it down and we sign off on it and I send it to the dancers and I say, does this look like what we all agreed on? Anything you would change? Most dancers email back and say, that's what I remember and that's good with me. And then we sign off on it and that uh, goes to a member of management and that's on file. So it sounds very like, I don't know, procedural, but what it really is doing is it's reinforcing what we agreed on and that we talked about what we're consenting to do, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what if something changes? Planned Parenthood has a fabulous acronym that I use when I talk about consent, and it's FRIES, F-R-I-E-S. My consent is freely given. It's revocable, meaning I can change my mind tomorrow if I want to. It is informed. I know how you're going to approach me and I'm going to approach you and where we're going to touch each other on each other's bodies today. I know what the choreographer wants from me today. You know, I'm informed. I am enthusiastic because I have all these things. Now I can free myself up and I, my consent is given enthusiastically and I'm specific. I specifically know what's going to happen, and if things change it, I know that I'm okay to talk about it, or if I'm still good with it, keep flowing with it, you know? Intimacy professionals are not there to stop the process. They shouldn't be. They should be there to support the process. So I'm not looking for problems. I am simply giving training about consent and boundaries and how to articulate what you need 
hey, I have a boundary around my left shoulder today because I have a bit of an injury from yesterday and that lift hurt. Could we try to just shift the, you know, the support on that, you know, to my lower rib cage or whatever? We're, we're talking about it. Now, I did have questions from my training sessions with the company about our injuries intimacy. <laughs> and I said, you know what? Yeah, they are. They are First of all, they're, they're intimate and personal to you. You know what's going on inside your body. But if you're getting that little voice of like, this is working against everything I should be doing today to take care of myself, yeah, it goes, it falls within consent, right? So we, we talk about those kinds of things. I do a big, in my training sessions, I, we, we talk for over half of it. Because all of this is new. And it needs to be immediately applied in the setting so that people are applying it to themselves and thinking about, well, what does this mean for me? How would I do that? So in our sessions, we had everything from, I have no problem saying what I need, to there is no world in which I can imagine speaking up in the middle of rehearsal, right? So we have this huge range of what people are willing to do. And that is totally normal because we're all coming from different places to this professional space. But what we're trying to do now is just talk about how we want this professional process and this professional space to operate. And that's what's new. So that's exciting to me because I'm not going to come into a company and say, here's how it's done. Everybody change your ways. It's a gradual grain of sand process. Yeah. (laughs) One bit at a time. So what is a boundary practice and what does it look like in the studio? I want to start by saying that boundaries are perfect where they are. So your boundaries are literally just information and that they can change. Right. We talked about that they're revocable and, you know, you can change your mind about what you said yes to yesterday might not feel good to you today and that you don't have to explain your boundaries. So this is a boundary for me today. You don't need to go into why. You know, we're in a professional setting. I don't need to hear your whole personal story. Plus, we don't have the time for it. So it's okay. It's just stating your boundaries are enough. So a boundary practice is really fun. We start learning it in pairs. And you can do this in groups as well. But one person stands opposite the other person. And they do three things. There's three parts of the boundary practice. It's called show, guide, tell. So the show part looks like you showing your partner with a hand, one of your hands slowly gliding over all the parts of your body that you are good today with being touched. So for me, I'm gliding over my arms and my neck and I'm skipping maybe the front of chest, my abdomen, my hips, my legs. I'm probably skipping the front of my pelvis and the back of pelvis. And notice I'm using deloaded words for body parts. That's another thing we talk about. And so then the next step, I'm, gonna, I'm showing my partner all those places I'm good being touched today. The next step is I take my partner's hand and put their hand lightly on my body just the way I did, which is introducing a level of touch, right? and skimming across all the parts of my body that are good with being touched today. If my partner doesn't want to touch, physically touch, they can hover over my hand as I guide again along my body everywhere I would like to be touched today. Or they can rest on top of my hand, or they can even mirror it on their own body opposite you. So people have choices, right? You're already starting to say what your boundaries are while watching somebody else's boundaries, right? 
And then the last piece of it is that your partner uses their voice, us dancers, we use our voice to tell our partner what we saw. So the person that was observing the other person now gets to speak and say, okay, I saw that your front of chest was not you know, you, that you didn't want to be touched front of chest, front of pelvis, back of pelvis. I also saw that you skipped your right knee. Does that mean something is going on with the boundary of your right knee? So you're starting to ask questions. You're paying attention and observing what your partner has shown you and guided you to do. And now you're telling them what you saw. And it's starting to use your voice. It's getting on the same page. Yeah, actually, you did see that I skipped my knee. Well, yesterday, my quad gave out, you know. And I need a break today. So if anything comes along where you, you know, see I need some support or whatever, I'm going to point out my knee. So it really is a way of stating your boundaries, observing somebody else's boundaries, using your voice, checking in with yourself. I mean, I don't know how many times I would get up in the morning, eat breakfast, come and take company class and throw myself into rehearsal. And I never even thought about how my body felt that day. I was pushing, pushing, pushing through it. So these are moments to just start checking in and then you reverse the process and the other person does it. At the end of boundary practice, now if that couple continues to dance together, you don't need to do a boundary practice every day. You just check in with each other. Hey, I remember yesterday, right knee, front of chest, back of pelvis, how are you doing today? Nothing's changed. We're still good. Don't need to repeat the boundary practice. If things have changed, you know, I, I realized that, you know, I might have told you yesterday that my abdomen wasn't good, but today I'm okay with that. So let's just check in and talk about. It's just clarifying. It's, and it's just information. And it can change. So it's all good. <laughs> A dialogue, very much like an ongoing conversation with the artists, with yourself, to know, like, is this working? Is this not? That's how right. do we grow? But speaking of the dialogue, how do you... And is it you? Is it um, the artistic management? Is it the dancers? How do you decide which ballets to focus on? Because I, I believe, if this is right, you worked on the ballet Fancy Free by Jerome Robbins. Also, you have worked on or you are working on Afternoon of a Fawn mm -hmm. by Jerome Robbins again. And then also Sleeping Beauty. Is that the third one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Sleeping Beauty, um, New York City Ballet's version with choreography by Peter Martins. And I'm curious, how, how did you or your team, whoever they were, decide upon those three ballets for the New York City Ballet seasons? Yeah, it's a great question. In the world of intimacy, when you're dealing with a director, like for a musical or a film or TV project or a play, I am given a script. I go through the script. I flag the moments that I think need my support. I then talk to the director and I say, what do you see? We come up with a sort of punch list of what we think the production needs in general. And then I am there in the room supporting that when those scenes and those songs or that movement comes about. With ballet and with dance, we'll talk about existing repertory now. I go in and I talk to artistic leadership. So artistic directors, associate artistic directors, sometimes operations managers, sometimes company managers, Sometimes choreographers who are just literally, management just says, oh, just talk directly to them because they're the ones you're going to have to deal with. I sort of give a menu of what I can do to support. And because this is so new, Claire, most of the time I, I'm just, people are sort of cherry picking off that menu. Mm -hmm. In this case, 
the dancers said, we want support in these five ballets because of these reasons. Now, I missed two of the ballets because they were in the fall. Okay. But they were articulate, the dancers, about why they wanted. So I'll give you one specific example. Sleeping Beauty. There is a non-consensual kiss of an unconscious minor. Okay. Sleeping Beauty. Are we all rifling back in our memory about the story of Sleeping Beauty, right? Yeah, she's So, here. and uh, actually other Disney productions, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> Disney stories. But it is a real concern because that is actually what's happening. How do we tell that non-consensual story? Now, we aren't out there to change all non-consensual stories to consensual stories. We are looking to do it within the boundaries of the people telling that story, right? That's mm -hmm. what we're doing. So if it's going to be incredibly triggering for a, an artist to engage in a, 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 you know, a piece of choreography or a narrative behind the choreography that is very, very triggering and personal to them, there are things that we can do to shape that, but we're never going to coerce. Right? It's very, very important to understand this isn't manipulating people's ideas to get them to do something and then consent. This is working within the artist's boundaries while trying to realize the vision of the, of the artistic staff or choreographer or director. So it is a collaborative process. The biggest piece of this is removing the power structure so that as much as you can, recognizing the power structure and how difficult it is to sort of speak up that ladder for what you need in moments of high pressure and the clock is ticking and new choreographer or new people that you're working with and you want to prove that you can do everything everywhere all the time, all at once, <laughs> the movie that just won. So I, I say that because when a third party can come in and sort of remove that pressure and have a constant role in saying, what do you need? What's your vision? Okay, artists, what do you need to tell this story? Great. Okay, anything problematic in there for you, artists, to tell this story? Well, no. Okay, what about you? Yeah, actually, I was thinking about this and this. Great. What about that is problematic? Let's get specific, right? Let's go down the consent. Why is it feeling coming up for you that you can't freely give that consent? Or what is, you know, what do we need to be specific about? And then what we do is, if it really is a problem, like some artists will just go, absolutely not. I'm not doing that. I'm not telling that story. I am not putting myself up there to, you know, expose my mental health in a way just to do my job um, that, that is not healthy for me. Great. Thank you for that information. That is a boundary for you. I love hearing about boundaries. Boundaries are just information, which is nothing negative about it. How else could we approach this then? What are your ideas? What do you think? How do you feel about this? How would you approach it differently for you, your body, your emotional approach, your analytical you know, approach, whatever it is, how can this be done best for you? And we come up with A, B, and C. I can then go back to artistic leadership and say, hey, what do you think about this instead of this? Nine times out of 10, it's like, totally fine with me. I mean, as long as the story is told in the same way. 
So, for example, with Sleeping Beauty, it was, are we doing a lip-to-lip contact? Are we doing lip-to-cheek? How long does it last? Who is instigating it? Well, it's the prince in the story. What happens right before the intimate moment? What happens right after? So that what story, everybody's on the right page about, on the same page about what story we're telling. So much more goes into it that has gone unsaid for so long for us as dancers. Mm-hmm. Right? And wouldn't that take so much of the guesswork away? I'm going to walk into rehearsal today. I know that he's, you know, going to come at me on that fourth count of eight for a two count. It's going to be a light touch. We get very specific about these moments within choreography. Is it a skin level touch, which would just be the surface? Is it a muscle levels touch? Is it a bone level touch? What story are we telling? Right. So for that, it's a skin level touch for a count of two and opening distance between each other for a count of two. She awakens. What happens then? Are we making eye contact? Eye contact is very intimate. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're not changing the choreography, but we're filling in a lot of gaps that actually gives me goosebumps thinking about because it's engaging artists in a way that they've never been asked to sort of participate before. And that is filling the room with like a lot more excitement and engagement, you know, artistic fulfillment. Right. Yeah, I'm thinking about how, one, again, the boundary setting and the clarity of the intentions and the the kinds of touch, how that is, like, peace instilling and how that just, again, frees the artist to not worry because we're already worried about so many things. (laughs) And then, yeah, the excitement because artists also crave, like, we love details. We love going into details and, like, understanding the meanings why we do anything, the meaning behind why we do anything. Yeah, and how that fulfilling that is for us to um, when we create, um, and even when we create in the context of a story, we still want to feel like we are totally a part of it and engaged with all of our faculties. Yeah. And yeah, that's uplifting. You've just touched on something that's really interesting because artists aren't often asked what they think about something in the classical ballet environment. I mean, in in terms of, like, how did that choreography feel for you? Is it telling the story the way you want it to? Like, we're not commonly asked that. There are choreographers that do that, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But we're not often engaged in that dialogue. And so when we get to think about it in that level of detail, or we're asked at all what we think or what we care about in that moment, like how my body could best do it, you know? It's engaging. Everybody's invested in making this the best it can be. Now, with movies and TV and plays and musicals, we're given scripts, and we can already start filling that stuff in ourselves. Dancers that I'm working with, with choreographers in the room for the first time, And nobody knows what to expect, including the choreographer. They want to just discover it, right, and just create something fabulous and new. That is a very collaborative process already because I think everybody's like, let's just discover what this is together, and I want to hear from you and open the dialogue for that. When it's set material that has been, you know, for generations set on companies, that's where we can dig in a little bit more and open our minds to the collaborative process. Mm -hmm. There's not always time to do that. Time is one of the biggest enemies (laughs) of this process. So many times we're catching those conversations as we can, but that's what I'm there to do as well. And I've offered that to the company. 
And how much time would you spend, speaking of time, how much time would you spend with the dancers, say for, say for Sleeping Beauty? Like how much time it, for that ballet in particular did you spend? Well, we, like I said, we laid this foundation with the training sessions. Mm -hmm. And then as I see dancers, I would sort of check in sometimes and say, hey, are you doing a boundary practice with your partner before you start rehearsal today? Just to check in with where you both are. And that lays some groundwork in terms of trust and process. And then in the studio, I am with New York City Ballet. The repertory directors are in charge of... Um, yes, Lee, we know the dancers want your support in this. So our rehearsals are during this period and this day and this time. Can you make it? Yes. And we talk about schedule. So I am in the studio for those rehearsals. I will get five minutes maybe at the top of rehearsal to check in, mm -hmm. to talk about what we're going to come across in the choreography on that day, on that particular rehearsal. And let's talk about what it looks like. What are your thoughts about it? And I'm doing that typically on my own. Sometimes repertory directors or out in other performance mediums, the director is there. But it tends to be a little bit more collaborative when, that, again, that power structure is not encroaching on the process. But we're all on the same page that we're doing it, right? Yeah. Nobody's like sneaking around about what they need to say. It's just um, sometimes some artists can talk more freely if they're just talking to me or and not worried about how it might be received. So I got five minutes or so at the top of each rehearsal. I'm then there in the moments of intimacy to work out what that looks like. Mm -hmm. I check in after the rehearsal. And then I'm, you know, this is my first season with the company, so I wanted to be there as much as possible. There were five couples, casts of yeah. Sleeping Beauty, right? So yeah. I was there for all of their rehearsals. The repertory directors were fantastic with me. They said, we just want you there in the room. So for all of the run-throughs, you know, of, of all the casts, pretty much, I was there for those either half day or full days. So it really ranges, because for Fancy Free, I was just kind of catching those rehearsals as they happened. But with yeah. full-length story ballets, you know, the time investment's quite different. Yes, yes. And Sleeping Beauty as itself in a show, it's about three hours long. And the main couple is on stage for most most of it. It's yeah. very demanding. And other things came up, you know, where where could the dancers be supported with their on-deck changes backstage? Were there intimacy, privacy, modesty issues that have come up for them that they could voice to me? Having me there in the training sessions introduces that they can bring things up if they need it. Because I say, I will interact with other departments here. I will interact with your artistic leadership, with wardrobe, with EDI, human resources, health and wellness, whatever we need, like, you know, COVID compliance, right? It's all about boundaries, really, if you think about it. If you stop and ask yourself what you need today and where your body is, and then you ask that of your partner or the people around you that you're dancing with, I mean, you can almost feel that it starts to build uh, a community around your work that is more engaged than than we were before with our blinders on trying to get our job done, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so is this one of your goals as you pursue this master's degree? It's clinical, mental... Health counseling. Health counseling, yes. yeah. Um, is that one of your goals in pursuing this degree is to, like, f deepen those ties in the community of artists and to, I guess, keep artists hopeful and 
at peace and at ease, free to do what they desire to do? Yes, because I think the mental health piece of that is foundational. It's just key. We can push our bodies to do what they need to do, but if we aren't really fully engaged, you know, psychologically, our peak performance is not happening. And I, I do feel that we are vulnerable. We're in a vulnerable setting. I say in every situation that I walk into now, the minute we walk into that studio, we are in an intimate environment, right? We've come out of the public environment. We are in an intimate setting and we are working with our bodies in intimate ways. So that's great. Let's just talk about how we do it and how do we best do it to serve everybody's needs. Now, sometimes that sounds like pie in the sky, like everybody's going to be fine when we do this, or everybody's going to raise their hand at once and shut down rehearsal because everybody has a need. No. When we do the training and we start to do the practice of boundary practices and check-ins, we get into our spaces and we're, we're doing our work. So I think there has to be some initial investment to learn any new skill or take anything new on board. But the company is saying to the dancers, we're here for you to do this. We're providing somebody to help you do this. Now you need, you know, engage. <laughs> and they are. And that's wonderful. You know, it's wonderful to watch. This is so great. Lee, thank you so much for joining us on The Rosenbox. And I hope our listeners really enjoy this podcast. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Is there anything else? I just would like to encourage all artists to reach out to their community support system. We have to be self-driven, and this is a self-driven business. We, you know, we, we are our own PR and marketing and media and um, trainer and you know, all that stuff. So we have to put ourselves out there in this industry and because it is self-focused in that way, to be at our peak, we still need each other. And we still need resources around us. I have shared resources with the company that people didn't know were there. You know, in, if, in case of an injury or in case of financial problems or whatever it is that is testing your mental health. You need a voice in it. And, you know, to start to use your voice is what it's about. But you first have to check in with yourself mm -hmm. of what you need yeah, and ask for what you need. And if those people don't know where to direct you, somebody else will. Don't stop trying. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Lee. And, um, yes, I hope all artists can listen to this and gain something from what we've talked about and... I'm really excited to see the fruits of your work on stage and also just hear about it from other dancers who I, I hope are just going to be thriving in new ways. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Rock. Oh, my gosh, my voice. 